Today's scriptures reading will be taken from the book of John, chapter 14, verse 1 to 6. If you are using the Black Pew Bible, it can be found on page 763 and 764, respectively. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. May the Lord bless the reading of his words in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. As I was seeking the Lord this, this week um, and thinking about meditating on also the preparation for the memorial service for, for Charles, um, the Lord kind of directed me to, to take a slightly different direction um, than what I had originally planned in the Move Closer series, and we'll come back to that next week. Um, but I think it's very, very appropriate that we examine this incredible promise that Jesus gives to us about his presence, both in this life and in eternity. And as we, we think about the loss of Charles, um, we want to set a, a right biblical perspective on that because that's where our hope is. That's where our strength comes from. And our confidence is in Jesus Christ and that this life is not the end. In fact, the fullness of life is realized when this mortal body is laid aside and we are, as 1 Corinthians 15 says, swallowed up in life. That's what's happened to Charles. And, and therefore, one of the things that I've made a very intentional choice to do over the years is to never refer to a believer in Christ who, um, who has died in the past tense. Because he's more alive today than he was two weeks ago when he was here. All that he is, all of his personality, his spirit, his soul, is safe and secure with the Lord. And we need to have that perspective to understand our viewpoint on what, at least what the scriptures teach us about life and death. Now, the setting of this teaching that Jesus gives here in John chapter 14 is at the communion meal, the Lord's Supper. And he begins with that, that statement, let not your hearts be troubled, but right before then, he had told the disciples, one of you will betray me. So their hearts were troubled. They were examining their own heart, their own life, to see... Because each one of them, it tells us in the scripture, asks, Lord, is it I? He's also told them that he's going to die, that he's going to be um, delivered up to, uh, to the authorities, 
He'll be betrayed. He'll be beaten. He'll be crucified. He'll rise again. He knows that they're going to experience a season of deep grief. And so he gives these words and these promises that sometimes I don't think we, we look very closely at exactly what he says. And that's what I hope to do today. So let's, let's start here with, first of all, Jesus' promise overcomes our fears. Here's what he says in verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now, the greatest fear that any of us face is death. But Jesus has defeated death. His resurrection proves that he alone has power over sin and death and the grave. What are we to fear? If he's already defeated the greatest enemy we could ever face, then truly we don't need to fear anything else in this life. And what's he tell us to do with our fear? Because the truth is, even though I know that in my mind, in practice, there are all kinds of things that I fear. I feel failure. I feel making mistakes. I fear making mistakes. This morning, I feared playing the bass because I haven't done it in a really long time, and it showed. Um, You know, so failure and fear came together in a beautiful marriage on a few times on the fretboard, but that's okay. It's all right. It's all right. Needs practice. You fear things as well. You fear rejection. We fear that we won't be good enough, that we won't measure up. We fear we won't be accepted. There's all kinds of fears that we face. But the truth is, if God is for us, as the scripture says, who can be against us? No matter what uncertainty you face or I face, Jesus can handle it. He's proven it. He invites us to cast every care that we have upon him because he cares for us and has proven his love for us. He's shown us in his victory of the resurrection that he can handle anything that comes at us. We don't need to fear failure or shame or guilt or disease or death. Instead, what we're to do is to choose to trust and fix our eyes on Jesus. Faith is is the opposite of your hearts being troubled. That's why the scripture, um, 365 different times in the scripture, it says, fear not. One for every day, because God knew that this would be a recurring theme in your life and in my life. Fear not. Remember who the Lord is. God the Father loves you. Jesus Christ is for you. And the Holy Spirit is within you if you've trusted Christ as your Savior. So we don't need to be troubled. Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil for God is with us. That's the promise of Psalm 23. What fear is, in essence, is forgetting God. Now, it's something that you and I do every day. But if you begin to examine your own fear and recognize that the reason I'm anxious, the reason that I'm Uh, worrying or fearful is because I've forgotten who God is and the promises he's made. That's the beginning point of trusting in him and having him overcome your fear. Don't allow fear to rob you of your sight of God. Fear is forgetting that God is with you. Fear is forgetting that God is for you. 
And fear is forgetting that God has already rescued you in Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing that Jesus wants us to recognize. Secondly, Jesus promises us life, truth, and the way. And really, this whole passage is expanding on what he says in John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus is the life that we long for. Now, I'm going to do them in a reverse order because um, I think to some degree, that's, that's what he's uh, exemplifying in the passage is he's showing how he is all three of these things woven together. He promised you and I life abundant, a life with joy, not in the aspects of the comforts of this world or necessarily success or wealth or even health, but a joy that transcends the brokenness of this world and grows deeper and deeper for all eternity. That's the cool part. Because God is infinite, and we are designed, created in his image to enjoy him, that means that our joy, our delight in God will ever increase for all eternity. It will never, ever go stale. It will never become familiar because there's so much more of him to delight in. That joy, that life is found in the person of Jesus Christ. So that's the first part. He is the life that we long for. Secondly, Jesus is the truth that we need. Truth is not a principle to apply to our lives or a set of ideas that we conform to. Truth is a person. In fact, perhaps some of the arguments that we, uh, that we wrestle with when we're, when we're talking with people who... Um, um, do not believe in God, they do not believe in the scriptures, and they do not believe in absolute truth, rather than debate with them whether or not absolute truth exists, maybe it's more effective to point them to the fact that truth is a person. Because that's what Jesus just said. You see, all truth is a reflection of his character. Everything that he has commanded us to do, what he has said is right and wrong, ultimately is a reflection of who God is. That's what we base our understanding of life and truth on. It's not just a set of principles. It's a person, the person of Jesus Christ. All truth flows from who Jesus is as the creator of everything. And the scripture says all things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things. Truth is a person. And for us to find wisdom, the wisdom to live our lives in a way that elevates Jesus and enables us to enjoy God, the truth that we need is more and more of Jesus. All scripture points to him. The word of God is living because it points to a living person, the word Jesus that's why this year, as, as we are, as Ian mentioned, as we're kind of beginning new habits, as you're going to the Word, and maybe you're, you've made a commitment to try to, to read some Scripture every day and to meditate on it, I want you to focus on it and, and simply keep asking the Lord to show you, tell me what this shows me about you. Teach me who you are. Not just facts about the Bible, not just events that happened in history or principles to live by but a person to know. 
When we pursue God in that way, we will learn, as we shared last week, how to delight in him. Well, the third thing that he says is that Jesus is the way to God the Father. The entrance to this life, truth, and way is faith in Jesus Christ. This is what he, he's reiterating exactly what he said in verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Faith in Jesus sh- um, shows us and brings us ultimately to the Father. That's why Jesus came. He tells us that that was his mission, was to show us who God is, what he is like, so that we can enjoy a relationship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We're going to look in, in a couple of weeks how to cultivate that. Because for many folks, that's not something that we've, we've really been intentional about. We, we, it's hard for us to, to wrap our minds around God being one being in three persons, and that you and I actually can relate to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit on a daily basis. But we're going to look at some practical ways to help us grow in our, our understanding of that. So Jesus promises us life, truth, and the way to God. And he says it's incredibly important because he's the only way to God. But the third thing I want us to notice here is that Jesus' promise is personal. Look what it says in verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you uh, that I, excuse me, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for who? Who? You. Okay, let's make it personal. He's saying that he's going to prepare a place for me. Would you just say that? Jesus has gone to prepare a place for me. That's what the scripture is telling us. That's what he told his disciples. And through the scriptures, that's exactly what he's telling us. That he's going to prepare a place specifically, personally for you. It's not just, um, if we're to use um, kind of our modern society, it's not just an apartment house. It's not, you don't get a panel lock. Okay, just so you know, that's not what he's preparing for you and for me. Some of you, I know, are probably a little disappointed in that because you were hoping everybody got exactly the same. But he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Now, what does he mean by that? Let's, let's, let's begin to allow what we know of God in this creation to inform what we begin to envision from his word in the new creation. God's house is huge. In fact, when you look at the new city of Jerusalem that is described in the book of Revelation, as it gives its measurements, do you know how big the city of Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven, do you have any idea how big that is? Anybody want to take a guess? Be brave. Be bold. Don't be afraid to be wrong. It's okay. It's roughly the size of the moon, one city. That's what's described in Revelation. The new Jerusalem is immense. And he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. He's designed a space 
for all of us. His house is custom designed for you, the one who knows you best and loves you most, Jesus himself. I told you last week that everything good, everything good that we experience is a reflection of the goodness of God. What you find enjoyable here on earth will, um, not, is, is not just a reflection of God's goodness, but it will be expanded, maybe not in the same way, but if it's different, it's only going to be better in the presence of God himself. It may take on a different form, but what you can be assured of is that it will never be less than what you've enjoyed here. It will only be more. Because that's the character and nature of God. Jesus also said, not only am I preparing a place for you personally, but the way to me is personal. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. It's popular to believe that all roads, all religions lead to God. But understand that what religion is is the human attempt to prove ourselves right before God. And in that sense, all religions are the same because we can't measure up. Biblical Christianity is not a religion. It is the account of God coming to us in Jesus Christ to bring us to the Father. It is radically different. It is God approaching us not us trying in some way to be worthy to approach God. Dramatically different. That's why we have to come through Jesus because I can't be good enough. You can't be good enough. You can't go to church enough times. You can't give enough money. You can't be baptized enough times. You can't do anything on your own that makes it so that you and I are worthy before God. But all we have to do, what God asks us to do, is to trust what he has done for us in Jesus Christ. Believe in God, believe also in Jesus. That's what he's calling us to do. The way to overcome fear, the way to have these promises, is to believe in Jesus. The way is not a philosophy or a religion. It is a person, Jesus Christ. Well, fourthly, as he promises us um, our own place in in the Father's house, we want to get an idea of what that is like. Now, I'm going to tell you that this passage oftentimes is used to describe heaven, and it has great application there, but that's not just what it's about. It's about more. But let's take a look at life after death, at life in eternity, what the scripture tells us. So I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. This is the Apostle Paul telling us about an experience, a vision that he had. He said, I must go on boasting. There is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ, he's referring to himself, who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. Only God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, but God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. So in other words, what he's saying is he encountered heaven 
God in his grace and generosity gave Paul a vision of what heaven was like and he can't describe it. In fact, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he quotes the Old Testament to give us um, some clarity on heaven. He says this, What no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. In other words, what he's saying is that heaven is so much more. God's house, God's presence is so much more than anything we could describe in physical terms. Now, in the book of Revelation, also in the book of Ezekiel, and some in Isaiah, we have some descriptions of the New Jerusalem, what some of the things it's like with the streets of gold and the purity that is there and the gates and, and the, the walls that are made of beautiful stones and, and gemstones. But we can't really grasp it. Now, maybe that bothers you. Maybe you would, you would go, but man, why doesn't God give us more details? Why doesn't he tell us just what it's like? And I believe that the reason he doesn't give us more information is not because he is not willing, but because it is so difficult for us to comprehend. The best way I know to understand this, to begin to get a picture of it, is, is, to, is to think in slightly different terms. Um, tell me something, somebody be brave, and tell me something ordinary that you do that you enjoy all the time can be anything something you like do what reading okay that's a great i love reading that's a great one all right now here's my question go ahead and there's a little video go ahead and play this in the background how would you describe reading to a child in the womb You've got you to be able to communicate to where the child is in the womb, right? There's no reference point for reading in the womb. If you would have picked music, we might have gotten a little closer because they could hear that. But reading, thank you for picking reading. That was a great example. Worked out really well for me. How do you describe the joy of reading, of imagination, of a story or facts or seeing history being unfolded to a child in the womb? How do you describe the taste of chocolate? How do you describe to a child in the womb what it's like to play with their brothers and sisters, unless they're twins? Then they, 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 that one kind of works out all on its own. How do you describe the most ordinary things that we enjoy? How would you describe a sunrise to a child in the womb? Everything in their world is enclosed to, to that point of reference, and they can't imagine anything outside of their mother's womb. But the moment they are born, a new adventure begins, a new life of experiences that they never, ever could have imagined and that no parent, no matter how hard they tried, would have been able to explain to them what it was like, even the most simple of things. If this life 
is so much more complex and wonder-filled than life in the womb, how much more so life in eternity in God's presence where sin has been taken away and dealt with because of the cross of Jesus Christ and we're experiencing the very presence of God. I think that's why he doesn't give us more details. Not because he's not willing, but because we could never comprehend. And here's, here's the thing. How many of you remember your birth? Any, anybody? Anybody go back and visit me and go, it was so bad. I mean, the lights were glaring, and, you know, mom was making all these noises, and, and she was yelling at dad, and you know, all these different things were happening in the room. It was very stressful. Birth is stressful. I've, I've witnessed a few of them. And um, I can't imagine what it's like for, for mom, and so I won't even go there. But we don't remember that. Just like to a large degree, um, mothers only remember a portion of their labor pains in birth. Chances are, if they remembered the whole thing, they would never, ever have another child. So it's a good, it's a grace of God that we don't remember that. Now, in the scriptures, you see a, a parallel to a certain degree between birth and death. Because what birth is, is that transition from life in the womb into life in the world. For the believer in Jesus Christ, death is the transition from life in the world into life in God's presence. And yes, it's a difficult transition that none of us want to go through. Death is the most unnatural thing you and I will ever do because it is not what God created us for. Death came about because of sin. It's the reason why we fear it is because it is the most unnatural thing. It's not what we were designed for. But God conquered death, provided a way for us to come to him through Jesus Christ. And the agony, that's why the scriptures tells us that this momentary suffering, the difficulty, the trials that we experience in this life cannot be compared to life in his presence. And just as the memory of birth is very quickly forgotten and faded, so too will the sufferings of this life when we enter into the brilliance of God's presence in eternity. That's a great promise. And it gives us the right perspective on how we walk through challenges and trials in our life. This is why Paul, in writing in Philippians, says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. He doesn't look forward to the transition, but he looks forward to being in the presence of the Lord. Now, um, I want you to, to think about this. This is, this is a good point to make with internationals like us because the most difficult question you face when you meet new people is when they ask you either where are you from or where is home, right? How many of you have trouble answering that question? At least a, at least a couple of us. For me, it's a, it's a difficult question. Over the last six months, when we were living in the United States and traveling back and forth, um, 
you know, that was one place that's home. And then we come back here to Prague where we established a, a home. And, and this feels like home. What I've discovered is that home is far more about people than a place. Isn't it? See, when we were, when we were with our daughter and her husband and her three kids, we were at home. When we were 1,200 miles away with our son and his wife and, and their two kids, we were at home. We got off the plane and were welcomed at the airport by um, some dear friends here in Prague. We were at home. Home is about people. And that's what Jesus really is, is teaching us in this passage. I want you to, to look and see exactly what Jesus says. Because we have a, 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 a common tendency in our minds to say where Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you and I will take you to heaven. That's how we translate it into our minds, right? But look what he says. Jesus promises us his presence in verse 3. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to where? To myself, that where I am, you may be also. That is huge. Jesus is going to prepare a place for us, and that place is in him, in his presence. Because that's what makes heaven, heaven, is the fact that Jesus, his presence is there. God's presence is there. That's what makes it heaven. It is not just the beauty that you find. I mean, I think about the different places that we've lived. I was born in Indiana and uh, in the Midwest of the United States, and it's a great, wonderful state with absolutely nothing that's remarkable about it. Other, here's, let, me, let me, if you're from Indiana, you have my condolences and my I shared um, <laughs> common frustration. Here's what Indiana is known for. Corn, cows, and basketball. That's about it. And when you drive, especially northern Indiana, which is perfectly flat, that's all you see. You see woods, corn, woods, soybeans. I mean, it's just all, it's very agricultural. Uh, and it's nice, but there's nothing remarkable about it. Now, we moved from there to um, Houston, Texas, where I was in my first church, and Houston was a great, sprawling, wonderful city, um, but it was not paradise either, just, just so you know. And then from there, we spent about 20 years in Colorado, and there they have the mountains and snow, and it's gorgeous. And then God sent us to this amazing, beautiful city of Prague. Those are far more beautiful than Indiana, just so you know. But none of those make it home. It is the presence of the people that we love that make it home. That's what makes heaven home as well. I will take you to myself. So the first dwelling that Jesus has prepared for us is not that place in the Father's house. That comes. But the first dwelling, the one that we um, should be most excited about is him himself. He has prepared his crucified, risen, and glorified self for us, and we are united by faith in him. 
part of the key to understanding this is to listen to what Jesus said. I go to prepare. Well, what was Jesus going to do? What was, it, what was gonna happen over those next few hours? What was he going to do? He was going to the cross to pay for your salvation and my salvation, to prepare a place for us in him. He was going to the grave to conquer death for you and I. He was going to raise from the dead in the resurrection as the first fruits, as the promise that we too, even in our bodies, will one day rise. He was going to prepare a place for us. And here's what happened. Here's what the scriptures reveals. Jesus, in going to prepare a place, after he rose from the dead, entered into heaven, into God's presence, and went into the temple that is in heaven. He had passed through the veil into the very holy of holies, into the throne room of God, and he carried with him your name and my name and the name of every person who puts their trust in him. Because he was going to prepare as our great high priest to make intercession for you and I. And to say to the Father, Andrew is mine. Zemena is mine. Nina is mine. Vartan is mine. So that God the Father, when he looks at each one of us, he doesn't see our sin. He doesn't see our failure. He doesn't see how many times we've turned our back on him. He sees Jesus Christ, our great high priest, and we are united in him. That's what he's prepared for us. He will take us to himself. 1 John 3 says this, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We are united in Christ and the great hope, the great transformation that happens to us is that we, by the power of the Holy Spirit and by the direction of God's word, become more and more like Jesus. And when he returns, he will strip away all that remains of sin that clings to our bodies and we will become like Christ, joint heirs with Jesus will bear his likeness. That's why 1 Corinthians tells us and describes that our mortal body is like a seed, not very beautiful on the outside. It's not much to to look at compared to a plant, but this seed is designed to fall into the ground and die, but God brings it back to life so that it becomes a beautiful tree, a beautiful flower. That's what happens for us as well. Everything becomes perfect. Think about what that means. Everything to do with sin and brokenness is gone. Our failures, our struggles, our insecurities vanish in a moment because they are are swallowed up in Christ. When we pass from this existence into eternity, we bear the image of Jesus. And his promise is no more tears, no more sin, no more saying the wrong thing or hurting others, no more lust or addiction or wrestling with feeling inadequate. 
In the flesh, we bear the image of man, of Adam, and we sin and we face disease and weakness and fear and brokenness and pain and tears and the hurt will not stop. But in Jesus, he wipes it all away. Here's his promise in Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things are passed away. But the great part of that is that God will dwell with us. We will truly enjoy the fullness of his presence. Now I read those verses because in just a moment we're gonna celebrate the Lord's Supper. And what the scripture reminds us of is that he says, he says this, that we will be his people and he will be our God. Now that's important because that's a quotation out of the book of Exodus that comes from the celebration of the Passover, which is what the Lord's Supper or the communion meal was. During the meal, you would have um, four different cups that were served as part of the Passover celebration. And with each of those cups, there was a quotation from the book of Exodus where God said, I will do something for you. And the third cup, the cup that is called redemption, which is the cup that we take in the Lord's Supper, it was this promise that I just read in Revelation, where God says, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. What it is, is wedding vows that he's giving to us. When Jesus gave us the instruction to eat of the bread and drink of the cup in remembrance of him and to do it until he returns, we are to do it until the marriage supper of the Lamb where all believers in Christ come together and in his presence we sit down and we share a meal with our Savior. That is the bridal or the wedding feast. But when we partake of the cup and of the bread, it is to remind us that God has promised himself to us in Jesus Christ and that we belong to him. In the picture that we have in the bread and the cup, it portrays the price that was paid in order for you and I to be united to Jesus Christ. The price was Jesus' body as represented in the bread. He said to his disciples, this is my body which is given for you. And it is represented in the cup which represents his blood where he said, this cup is the new covenant. It is my blood which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins of many. He said, it is the forgiveness of that you long for has been cleansed by my dying for you and shedding my blood. And you are now clothed with my righteousness. 
It is his promise that he encourages us to remind ourselves of over and over and over again. In just a couple of moments, we're going to share in that. But maybe you have some questions about about death, about life after death. I put a few verses in your sermon notes for you to look at, but if you have questions, please email me, and I'll point you to scriptures where you can, you can find out whether, whether we have personal knowledge after death. One of the great promises of the scripture, the great assurance that we have for Charlie is because of his faith in Christ, the scriptures tell us in Corinthians that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It, there's not something where you, you go to soul sleep. Your, your spirit and your soul are united with Christ the moment that we die. That's our great hope. His body awaits the resurrection as does the bodies of all saints but his soul and his spirit is with the Lord. There's lots of questions that we have, and I just want to encourage you, feel free to write me, and I'll do my best to help provide answers from the Scripture um, to your questions. But at this time, let's prepare our hearts to receive communion. Would you just bow your heads for a moment? Scripture tells us that we are never to take the Lord's Supper lightly, that we are to examine ourselves. And what that means is that we want to ask the Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts and reveal to us any area of sin, anything that is um, in our life that is an offense to God, and to confess it, and to choose to turn from it. So right now, would you just take a few moments and any sin that the Lord brings to mind, would you just confess it? The great assurance of the scripture is if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. When we confess and we have faith in Jesus Christ, we are cleansed. We want to make sure we examine ourselves because this is a holy moment. What we do is, is a reminder that God is with us. We are entering into his presence. We do it individually and corporately as the body of Christ, and we share the, the bread and the cup together remembering who Jesus is, remembering his sacrifice, remembering his resurrection, remembering that right now he is our great high priest who intercedes for us. And just as at that first Lord's Supper, Jesus took the bread, he blessed it and broke it and gave it to his disciples said for them to eat it because it was his body given for them and he blessed the cup and he gave it to his disciples today he is inviting you if you've placed your trust in Christ to come to his table to receive from him these elements that represent his love his promise his wedding vows to you that you are his people you belong to him, 
and he is your God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the bread. We thank you for how it represents who you, Lord Jesus, are. Thank you for giving your life, Lord Jesus, for us. Thank you that your body was offered up upon the cross as a sacrifice that we could never fulfill because you alone are perfect and holy. As we receive the bread, we do it in faith, remembering who you are. We ask your blessing upon this bread. Lord God, we thank you for the cup, the cup that represents your precious blood, Lord Jesus, that was shed because of my sin, our sin, shed not only to forgive us, but to cleanse us and clothe us in your righteousness so that we can be united through faith in you. We ask your blessing upon the cup. Lord, we ask your blessing upon each person as they come and partake today. May we come into your presence with awe, with humility, with joy, and with expectation of what you will do. Thank you for your great promises. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have gone to prepare a place for us that is not just heaven, but it is a place in you. Lord, make that reality something that we are able to live. I ask in Jesus' name. going to invite those who serve to come up and to, to serve. The band will be coming up and we'll serve the, the band first so that all may participate in um, communion together. And then um, you'll be invited to, to come and partake of the bread and of the cup.